Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by John Spencer. John is a pioneering outer space architect with design awards from NASA for his work on the International Space Station. He is the founder of the Space Tourism Society, co-founder of the Space Tourism Conference, and co-founder and chief creative officer of Mars World Enterprises, Incorporated. His work aims at promoting and developing the space experience economy. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the space experience economy. So I'm trained as an architect, but the last 30 years I've been putting that training to focus on design for outer space, design of space stations and real moon bases and Mars mission planning and Mars habitats. And actually in parallel to that, uh, Mars and future themed entertainment projects and real estate development. So. I've always loved science and space and futurism and kind of combined it into a career that's uh, perked along pretty well. I love it. So when did you make the transition from architect building houses down the road to architect building super yachts in space? Well, I started in 1978 when I was still in architect school. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's, it's a long time, right? Uh, and I developed the perception that space tourism was going to eventually be the longest, our biggest and I think most vibrant and interesting uh, space industry in 1982. So this is actually the 40th year that I've been uh, promoting. My wife always says I'm in some kind of time warp. I've got 20 years here, 20 years there, that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but eventually after you you know come up with some ideas that take 20, 30 years, 20 or 30 years later, they're there. Right. So this is like a, a golden era. We call it the space renaissance right now. And last year was just amazing with all the space experience flights and all the things happening and all the announcements and all the new things going on. And this year is going to be even better. That's wonderful. Um, what do you think is driving the space renaissance? Curiosity, challenge, people believing in the future. In other words, that space is an important part of creating a healthy, sustainable future for all humanity. Uh, the excitement, uh, the challenge, you get the most interesting people around and that mixes things up. So you get all these billionaires and designers and entertainment people and all this stuff, mixing it up and just talking a lot about ideas and what could be and what could happen and why is this important? And boy, I'm so excited about it. So it's, it's really the people 
feeling the freedom to explore ideas and implement them that's making the renaissance really work maybe a another productive question is why we're having the renaissance now so obviously we had the space race in the 60s and 70s went to the moon all of that and then the the impression that people have including myself and i'm not a, a space buff in particular is that there was 30 or 40 years during which not much happened and there was kind of stagnation and we don't really have the capacity to go back to the moon. And I, I wonder if you have thoughts on sort of the opposite question. Why is it that we had this long period of uh, relatively unambitious space, space goals? Well, I, I don't really agree with you on that. Um, of course I've been immersed in this you now my whole life, but yeah. after the uh, Apollo program, we developed the space shuttle. And the space shuttle allowed us to actually build and operate the International Space Station. And that was a big deal because 16 nations, including us and the Russians, when we liked each other, cooperated for decades on building and operating the International Space Station. And still at the space station, people are very friendly and working with each other and so forth. So there was not the excitement of the first moon landing or the race to the moon, but there was this extraordinary active activity of shuttle flights and building the space station and building new things. And in parallel to all that was all the unmanned missions. You know, we've now visited all of the planets in our solar system and we have vehicles leaving our solar system. And then we have vehicles landing on Mars and rovers on Mars. So the science and the space uh, perspective of things has continued, maybe not as, as, as much noise as the Apollo program, but it's ramping up now. And the reason is we now have private enterprise that owns and operates their own fleet of space vehicles, of rockets from SpaceX to what Bezos is doing at Blue Origin. There's other countries working on this, other corporations. Uh, you know, Relativity Space is 3D printing their full scale spaceships, for example. So it's brought it all together right now is access to space, reduction in cost, more diversity of who's doing it and what they're doing in space. And we're now talking about movie studio modules on board the space station, our free floating modules. And we've been forecasting that for many, many years. So the core reason we have this renaissance is access to space through private enterprise. I like that. I like that answer. I, I wanted to follow up on the perceptions of, I, I guess, a, a loss of the American capacity to do things in space. I, I think those are compelling reasons that you laid out. The ISS, the space shuttle, we've been to every planet. In the solar system, we've left the solar system now. Those are not trivial things. So do you think that the the widely held belief that SpaceX is just leaving NASA in the in the dust is not quite fair? I mean, because this is sort of where I'm operating from. It's that uh, NASA didn't do a whole lot, and then within a, you know less than 10 years, Musk has reusable, reusable rockets, you know, and, and we're seriously talking about going to Mars. So it, from just an outsider's perspective, it looks like there's been these huge leaps that are driven almost entirely by this one company. Uh, do you think that's not quite fair, or should we cheer NASA, but then cheer Musk louder? Well, you want to cheer both because they have a very intimate process in the, our partnership. There would not be a SpaceX without NASA because more than 15 years ago, NASA gave SpaceX and some other groups money to develop their rockets because they knew they were going to replace the space shuttle. And rockets in certain ways have more advantages than certain space shuttles did because of the technology used in the 60s and 70s and 80s for the shuttle. So NASA and SpaceX uh, and Bezos, they have a very good working relationship. And it's a, a great thing. It's America having our tax dollars being used by NASA to do core research and to fund things. 
And once they get to a certain stage, private enterprise gets in there and starts capitalizing on that information, that knowledge, that need, that opportunity, and that market share. So there's always been, quite frankly, a very good partnership between NASA and um, commercial space enterprise. And NASA is spending more and more time on hardcore, hard, difficult research. And it's turning more towards climate change issues and using our satellites to understand climate issues. And we have most of our information about that actually from space, uh, what's happening with the upper atmosphere and oceans and currents and all those kind of things. So there has been a very intimate, positive, healthy partnership with NASA. Now, another element to consider in all this is what's happening with Space Force and what's happening with space military, and that is engaging also. And one of the things we talk a lot about, and we use as a tool to help people who are new to space kind of relate to it, is we talk about the oceans. And we say that almost everything you do on the ocean, except for fishing and drilling for you know, gas and oil, we will be doing in the oceans of space. We're always talking about spaceships. And even a moon base is basically usually an underground spaceship. It's all enclosed. It's like a submarine and stuff. So Space Force was formed particularly to counter issues related down the line and hopefully make it peaceful issues with China. And uh, in developing that, there's also a paralleling development, what we call the Space Fort, the, I'm sorry, the uh, Space Guard Service, okay. modeled after the Coast Guard. And that's the one that's going to interface with the space yachting and space tourism and space cruise ship and space sports and space movies and all those kind of things, just the way they do it on the oceans. So there's all these things happening, but they're happening with a new spirit. I've seen it many times, a new feeling, wow, I can be involved in this. I never thought I could be involved in space. And what I know I can bring to the space community, and it makes, it makes sense and it's useful. So there's this optimism, this kind of vibrance happening. It's really genuinely exciting. I, I love to hear that. Do you think that the the tight relationship between Blue Origin and NASA and SpaceX and NASA is a historical accident, just the fact that we have this institution that's done pretty good work. And so when the private sector began to put more of its wealth behind trying to expand into space, it was sort of an obvious maneuver to partner with this government agency. Or do you think that even in a perfect world, it would make more sense to have a public-private partnership? Well, if you go back in history, let's just take that question and get into it in detail. Even in the Apollo program, NASA outsourced, contracted with Boeing and Lockheed and all those big players uh, that, who existed then to build the engines and build the rockets and build the capsules and build the modules and do all the stuff necessary and build the launch complexes and build the ships at sea that tracked everything. So the federal government through NASA has contracted out for 50, 60 years all these space-related stuff. It's just that today, the contracting has a greater range of contractors. They still contract with Boeing. Boeing's building their own spaceship module, and Boeing's working on the um, Senate uh, space launch vehicle and stuff like that. So NASA sets a direction, sets requirements, gets the federal funding, organizes it, and hires outside contractors, and they do the work. So that's been going on since the beginning of NASA, and the Navy does it, the Air Force does it, everybody does it. So that's a pretty proven system. The difference today is that small companies can do what big companies in the past could only do. And that's because of new computers and technology and just a, a, a feeling that they could do it. Yeah. There was, there was no 
uh, 100% that SpaceX was going to going to win or be successful. They came real close a couple of times to going away. Right. Uh, but they they stuck to it and they did it. And they're very heroic in it. But the system of the our taxes giving the federal government money to invest in projects that have long range potentials for benefit for society and economy works pretty well. I like that. Uh, okay. And you mentioned that NASA is doing a lot of hardcore basic research, much of it related to climate change, the changing oceans, the changing atmosphere. What, what are some of the insights that have come out of that? What, what are some of the projects that are ongoing there? Well, I, I, that's not my area of expertise, so I don't really know the details. But I can tell you this, that uh, here in California, Southern California, we have JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory right. up in the Pasadena area. And I know a bit about what they're doing. And they have been developing for years uh, satellites that measure uh, chemicals and all kinds of odds and ends in the upper atmosphere. And they can track what the oceans are doing by temperature. And there's all kinds of pretty high quality, intimate science that allows them to do all that. And then what they're doing is putting that data that they're collecting into supercomputers and developing models of what's happening with climate and climate change and forecasting where things are going. So that from an earth uh, climate change issue is going along pretty well, but we've got dozens of satellites and probes and all kinds of stuff out in the solar system exploring, learning stuff. We've got, there are now three rovers on Mars. There's the two American and the one Chinese. And they're roving around doing hardcore real world science that's never been done before and transferring that information to earth to be analyzed and so forth. There's more Mars missions planned. There's a sample return mission that JPL is organizing, which means a rover of uh, lander will land, small rover goes off, collects actually samples, comes back on, puts it in another little rocket, which takes off from the first uh, lander and basically comes back to Earth. So we're going to get real Mars material that hasn't burned up mostly through entering in the atmosphere. We got about two dozen Mars rocks on Earth right now, we've found, because they were ejected from huge explosions millions of years ago that I hit see. Mars came eventually to the solar system. And then there's tons of science being done in medical areas, how to monitor the astronauts, material processing, a huge amount of work. I was just watching a TV show about that the other night on uh, aviation and uh, uh, collision avoidance and all kinds of different odds and ends. And that doesn't even count the work that NASA and other groups do for our military and intelligence agencies and stuff. So. There's a ton of really interesting research that eventually filters out into other industries that builds up those industries. So this is probably an even less fair question, but I wrote down uh, something you mentioned earlier about some of the science that's coming out of the various missions to planets in the solar system and even out into interstellar space. So I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, like what, we're, what we're discovering out there. There's a huge variety of moons and the planets are surprising us all the time. In other words, things we, the scientists thought of, they're going like, holy, wow, that's different from what we thought. And that's exploration, that's discovery. One of the things that I personally find really interesting for a variety of reasons is we now know for fact that there are eight of the moons between Jupiter and Saturn that have oceans underneath their ice, liquid water. Oh, is that right? Yes. And there, I've been involved in two movies that were all about that kind of stuff. I do a lot of consulting on movies and TV shows for space and future stuff. Uh, but could there be life in those liquid oceans? Probably. 
what kind of life? And it could be way beyond just microbes. It could be really interesting kinds of life. So that was a discovery that surprised a lot of people, particularly the numbers of it. And with other astronomy work, which amazes my mind, they can tell now there's over 4,000 planets we've identified around different stars uh, in this part of the galaxy. And they, they have instruments that are so sensitive, they can tell the difference in brightness of a star when a planet comes in front of it. I mean, that is like mind boggling that they have instrumentation and they're able to do stuff like that. I mean, that's almost magical and it gives you hope for the future that there's way numbers of good people out there exploring and doing science and discoveries and trying every day to learn something and move things forward. I also find it absolutely breathtaking that we're able to induce some of the things we're able to induce with just what we have here on earth and the instruments, which is impressive as they are, are pretty limited in, in terms of what they can see. A while back, we interviewed, uh, Alexandra Ciprianovich, and she's a astrophysicist who focuses on galactic mergers and like large scale structure of the universe and the filaments between the, the galaxies and things like that. And I asked her the same question. I was like, how, how is it possible that we know all these things? How can we talk intelligently about what's been true about the structure of, of galaxies going back billions of years? And she walked me through it and she said, well, we do these things and we can, you know, read the spectra out of, uh, the, the light that's coming back and we make these inferences and we can do experiments on earth and we just watch for a while and <laughs> you, you put it together and you got enough brilliant people working on it. And it's amazing what you can figure out. It truly is. Humans are extraordinary. And we are now have the, uh, James Webb, uh, space telescope, which I believe is now fully deployed or close to being fully deployed. And it's the next generation by miles ahead of the Hubble telescope. And, it's an infrared telescope, which means it measures infrared light, which has all kinds of that database in it. Um, and that's going to allow us to peer deep, deeper into space to the origins of virtually the universe. I mean, this is like humans created this stuff. We invented it. It came together, cost $10 billion. It's in space a million miles from Earth. So it's not influenced by the Earth itself. And it's our eyes to the deepest part of the universe. It's fantastic to think humans can do that. I completely agree. The The power of the human mind to apprehend the universe is, is really remarkable. I haven't followed the James Webb experiment all that much. So I, I saw the newscast when they put it out there and and kind of in the weeks after there was this steady drop off of people commenting on it. But where where is it exactly? Is, I mean, is it just up where Hubble was? I, I really don't know. No, Hubble is in Earth orbit. The James Webb Space Telescope, <coughs> excuse me, is a million miles away from Earth, and I believe in a stationary place. A Lagrange uh, point? Not, no, that's around the moon and stuff. This is okay. the moon's only a quarter million miles away. So this is beyond the moon, purposely so it's not interfered with by actually the moon or the, the Earth, and it's super cold out there, and that's why the infrared is higher quality because infrared. Uh, as rep gets heat waves and stuff like that or whatever. But uh, it has instrumentation that was just dreams of a decade ago that are real and working in space right now. Uh, and what they'll learn from it, hopefully over the next 20, 25 years, should give us a far better understanding of the formation of the universe and its operational issues and all kinds of stuff. It's magical science. And it's not just that humans can do it, but humans can collaborate together from around the world. Scientists around the world 
have been working on this for decades. And it's that collective wisdom and consciousness and intelligence and ideas that move that stuff forward. It's, it's really remarkable. I'm very hopeful, actually, of the future. I am as well. For, and, and for the same Russia reason. and what Russia is doing right now. And stuff like that. <laughs> right. So th- there are reasons to be pessimistic, as it turns out. I, we're actually interviewing a couple of people on the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the the week, this week and, and next week. And we're going to try to form a clearer picture about that. Before we do yeah. that, uh, I, I was hoping you could talk to me a little bit about Space Force. So I watched the Netflix special with Steve Carell. I really like, uh, I really like that, that show. But uh, I, I haven't done that much research on Space Force proper or the, the Space Guard and what all is happening there. So how do you feel about it as an organization? Have they done anything cool that you'd want the audience to know about? Yes, they're protecting us from, uh, well, they're, they're protecting us from a couple of things. One is actually part of their mandate is protecting Earth from asteroids that might hit Earth and kill zillions of people and cause environmental disaster and all kinds of stuff. And they have science and technologies of a way they can actually divert asteroids. And this is real stuff. Uh, and then they're out there monitoring what's going on. And they're like the big police force saying, you know, we want to keep the oceans and space lanes free for commerce and nobody can own the moon and all kinds of things like that. Now that's space force. And they've done amazing things like a third of all Academy graduates now from the U S air force go directly into space force. They're not way over 10,000 people and so forth. Wow. Uh, separate and not yet formed. And we've been talking about it amongst a number of us space guys for 20 plus years and not my idea originally was space guard service modeled after the United States Coast Guard. They do the exact same thing the Coast Guard does for the oceans of rescue and monitoring and standardization of stuff and environmental protection of basing law enforcement for uh, orbit and around the moon and so forth. And that will operate in the same way that the Coast Guards of the world are separate and operate differently from the navies of the world, uh, which makes sense. So um, those are developing in parallel. It could be that parts of Space Guard service or private enterprise running those. I think there's some of that in the Coast Guards around the world as well. But when you start getting dozens and hundreds of ships, spaceships in Earth orbit and space station stuff, this is over decades, you have to have space lanes, you know, just like we have ocean lanes. You know, if right. someone gets in trouble, you got to go save, help save them. Uh, you've got to have airlocks that all connect to each other, that standardization, so you can, in fact, connect up to people. So a lot of this also evolves into another whole big area, which is essentially a growing range of careers in space. And I, I have a lot of people approach me at events or other ways and say, you know, I, I really want to go to space, but I'm not rich and I'm don't, I don't think I'm going to win a lottery, but what can I do? What can I do? And I just tell them, well, work in space. Right. It's very interesting because people's physical faces change a little bit. Most of these are younger people. And they go, it's like, oh, a whole new world has opened <laughs> to them that, oh, I never thought of that. I, I'm, I'm an engineer, but I don't do aerospace. Great. You do, do other kinds of stuff. It says, I want to study cooking or I'm a chef. Well, we got to cook fine meals on board orbital super yachts, right? Someone's got to clean those things. Someone's got to operate them. Someone has to assemble them. Someone has to maintain them. Someone has to provide the entertainment. When we get the casinos in space, which is a challenge because most uh, gambling relies on gravity. Right. They throw the ice or spins. It's very interesting, right? Yeah. The designing a space casino is actually a lot of fun. 
Real fun is designing a hot tub for space because all zero gravity and water forms the sphere. And I'll tell you all about that later on. It's really cool. But when you, you tell people that they can be part of this humanity moving outward into the solar system, they could contribute to that. They could have a life that's full of meaning and associating with really interesting people and bring their skills and ideas to the, the whole forefront of everything. That empowers people. That gives them a direction in life. And we talk about that more and more through our space conferences and other space conferences and events and so forth. But there's gonna be a widening range of job opportunities and careers in space. So you can go many times actually. And, and you think that is pretty near on the horizon? Like it's, it's not decades away? It's an evolution. Uh, it's going to be ones and twos and threes and fours and things like that. So think, and then sometimes there's a big jump, a big leap, big acceleration and so forth. Uh, but it will be a process that will be ongoing forever. Even on the space station, there's more and more people going to the space station who are not classic scientists. They might be a specialist engineer in hydroponics, for example, but they're going to try to learn how to grow uh, crops in zero gravity, for example, and dealing with the radiation issues and dealing with all stuff like that. Now, if things really pop and take off very well, for example, sports in space, that's going to be a very big deal. You know, dune buggy racing on the moon, skydiving from the lower's <laughs> orbit, uh, yacht races around the moon very close to the surface that's really cranking really fast and so forth. In other words, the America's Cup for uh, yachting in space. That's going to provoke a lot more people going to film these things and to coordinate this and cook the food and be the medical people and do all the stuff in support of those crews doing things in space. So I'm forecasting that uh, space sports and space tourism will be the accelerators to have more and more people of greater diversity of backgrounds going in space and going for a wider variety of reasons. That's pretty cool. Oh, I, I completely agree. My daughter is four. And she and my son both have this fascination with the moon and the stars. And she knew like she knew all the planets before she knew all the colors. And, and I would fly. I would pretend to fly her around and she, she would you know, recite all the planets in her little you know, three year old voice. But she's also very fascinated by medicine and the human body. And so she'll watch these documentaries on Netflix and she'll explain to me how the lungs work and how the stomach works and, and various other things. And so I told her, like, you should maybe be a space doctor when you get older. And she's, she's four. There, there's a lot of years in which she, she right. could change her mind. But uh, when, when she went to school for her first day, they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she, she put space doctor. And so we still have the little placard where she says it and it's got her class <laughs> and, her, and her, her name. And then it says space doctor is what I want to be when I grow up. And I figured if she's four, you know, and she goes to college and medical school and she's 30, you know, by that time there will surely be people like a whole field of people who specialize in exactly these kinds of issues, maybe going to space, maybe some maybe go to space and, and some may not, but it's, it's absolutely not fantastical at all to think that eventually, and, and not too far away, you'll have people who go to school for space medicine or space agriculture. Oh, absolutely. Your, your daughter sounds remarkable. And there will eventually be hospitals in Earth orbit, hospitals on the moon. You have to have those as more and more people go. Right. And even on board space stations, you need medical facilities or people looking into how do you do more quality dentistry in space, for example. What happens if someone has an appendix burst? It might be dangerous for them to return to Earth under those conditions with high Gs and stuff. How do you do operations in space, for example? So the, the hard part about space actually comes down to this. It's what we call the wetware. The wetware are people. 
right. and their plants and their seeds and their fish and their animals. And we weren't evolved. We didn't evolve to exist in zero gravity. We have to adapt to those circumstances and stuff. So how do you take care of in a healthy, well quality way, the wetware, the people, and also wealthy people and people who are going to win lotteries, they're going to want to have great meals. They're going to have great hygiene. They want to have great entertainment. They're used to the highest quality there is, and they're going to expect that during their space experiences, right? So that means we have to design, which to me is the really fun part, is inventing this stuff and designing it, the space yachts and this, you know, moon bases and all kinds of stuff like that. That's really cool. I agree. And when you told me that you were an architect and you have this long-standing interest in space, I wrote down that I wanted to ask you about some of the design challenges. And you also alluded to hot tubs in space and surgeries in space. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges of engineering a livable environment in space and not just a livable one, but one that people actually want to go and spend months at a time in. Well, what's involved? Just paint that picture for me. Sure. Well, let me start off by saying I had to change my own personal perspective and attitude in the earliest days, in the late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, of how to design a space, because we are so oriented with up and down. And that's that's how we are. And when you're designing stuff that doesn't really have an up and down, although the astronauts almost universally see Earth as down and space as up. So I call it, I had to change the language, actually, instead of saying up and down, I would say, and I taught myself to do that, I had to, I had to teach myself everything, there wasn't any of this stuff around. So I would say toward, which is Earth, or away, which is space. And that helped me in my own mind kind of adjust. I mean, did weird things like take my architectural drawings and turn them sideways, which really drives you nuts to do that. <laughs> but on purpose, it makes you think differently. I mean, I would literally get headaches I'm drawing this stuff and designing these things. Um, so I had to myself adapt to the perception of designing in zero gravity. And I became more comfortable in that. And I learned a lot of this stuff. I'm not an engineer. I am absolutely not an engineer. But I know enough to be in tr cause trouble and to understand some of the principles of certain things and stuff. Uh, and some of this is rocket scientists. And actually, believe it or not, some of this is not rocket science. You know, right. type stuff. a surprising amount of it is not rocket science. Hello, it's not rocket science. A <laughs> uh, little secret there. But... Um, learning to design this stuff and then getting into it and then innovating and imagining different things. That's what I enjoy doing. And what space architecture allows you to do is be free of gravity. And when you're designing on the moon, the moon's harder than zero gravity. Zero gravity is zero gravity. The moon, one six, that totally drives you nuts because what does that really mean? You know, there's a little bit of gravity, but not, you know, you can jump 10 feet in the air and be like, whoa, how does that work? So right. that's a bit of a challenge. So as a designer, you have to adapt to the design environment you're working in, but that's the fun challenge of doing that. And then once you're comfortable, you start imagining all these different things. So for example, the hot tub. This is a really good example. So if you look at ocean going yachts and super yachts and especially mega yachts, they have swimming pools on board the big yachts. They have tons of hot, lots of hot tubs and stuff like that for lots of reasons, particularly in Europe. Uh, but any kind of fluid in zero gravity forms a sphere mm -hmm. because gravity is not there to flatten it out. So when I realized, you know, I got to have a hot tub on board my orbital super yacht. <laughs> name, is, yeah, name is called Destiny. Actually, this is all designed and all kinds of stuff. It's beautiful images and all of it. Um, and I said, wow, that's going to be fun. So I really spent 
half a year designing an, a zero gravity hot tub. And it's basically a water sphere. And there's a three foot wide center thing made of metal or plastic where you have little, put your feet hooks into it. And inside that has the gyros and heating stuff that you want to make it a hot tub type stuff. And then the water will stay collected around the sphere because water connects to itself, right? Right. Now, if you hit it with your hands, some water will fly up and little drops will go away. But basically, it will stay there. And you can sit there with your feet in the thing and have your upper torso out and do a little rubbish, bring you drinks. And you're looking at Earth below and having a wonderful time. <laughs> I really like that image of just spending half a year designing your super yacht in space. Yeah. It's probably yeah. quite enjoyable. I'm curious. Well, it, it really is. It really is enjoyable to do stuff you kind of figure no one else has ever done, ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I doubt that you're going to find many specifications or patents filed for hot tubs in space. You, you definitely have that whole field open to yourself. Right. Uh, above you only sky, you might say. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious about the economics of, of all of this. Uh, obviously, we have spectacularly wealthy people on Earth who can afford to build their own rockets, but it seems to me like space hot tubs are a level beyond that and, and racing yachts around, or racing um, aircraft, uh, spacecraft around the moon is, is a level above that. So in terms of economics, how do we get there? How is it that we build that plank by plank? Well, we kind of are there. Uh, so that's a great question. And, and let me get into this in some detail. So I said earlier, I modeled the general space tourism industry after the cruise line industry. It's actually a very good model. You have cruise ships are big devices that take a lot of people out into an extreme environment, the ocean, they have a great time, they spend even more money and they bring them back and happy, happy for everybody. Back. So the cruise line industry is a typical, you know, cash profit oriented type business. The yachting industry is totally different. When you have a super yacht or a mega yacht, they're incredibly expensive. There's four mega yachts on the ocean. These cost over a billion dollars to design and build an outfit and run over wow. a billion. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And there are well over a hundred super yachts. They're even 300 foot and they cost three, four, $500 million. And they're super expensive to operate. So where's the economics in there? It's a different type of economics. It's not a cash profit thing. It's a social profit thing. Okay. And has been way back to the days of the Pharaohs having their Royal barges going up and down the Nile. There's a whole history of all this stuff. So the social profit is pride and prestige and social standing and gifting and one-upsmanship and all that kind of stuff like that, that really wealthy people, but also wealthy corporations and even some nations get into. So these things exist for the social profit of them existing. Now, when you talk about sports, today you have to have at least a billion and a half, it's approaching $2 billion for a Formula One racing team. And that's for your cars that go 2,000 million miles an hour on these racetracks. <laughs> right. Um, and the profit there, there is cash profit in certain areas. But again, it's pride and prestige and branding and the sponsorships of these things are where the real money comes from. So we know a lot about sponsors. Who will sponsor these races? 
and who will sponsor these movies in space and why will they do it? It's all one upsmanship. And downline, it's all about getting eyeballs on your particular brand and your particular project or concept or name or investment or things like that, right? So to spend a gazillion dollars having a racing yacht go around the moon is well within the potential because that's the first time in history a racing yacht's gonna go around the moon and there's a race and people are gonna watch it and they could get killed for real. And this is a really exciting, amazing thing. I love it. So it's, it's mostly, it's just a different set of uh, economic dynamics that are at play. Absolutely. When I realized that too, and one of the things I like doing, of course, exploring all this stuff, mostly in your head and stuff like that, is the day was 1996 that I realized, wow, one of those epiphany moments that, because I was sketching stuff and doing all kinds of things, I say, how the fuck am I going to, how the heck am I going to uh, finance this? How the freak am I going to finance that? Um, but, um, and then it hit me, wait a minute, because I was studying yachts and I was saying, wait a minute, they don't make money. They, they gobble up money. They exist for the pride and press. You know, one of those, pow, your mind just like expands and goes like, wow, I just discovered something. At least for me, I discovered it. Right. But, uh, it opened up a whole universe of possibilities because these can, these things can be real. And when you explore and you discover stuff, I call them exploring the design frontier. Right. Where you can make discoveries just like you discover something on a planet or in the oceans and stuff. And you're an explorer. And that's really fun and exciting and empowering. I'm exploring stuff and I'm looking at stuff I don't think hardly anyone's ever looked at before. And wow, I just figured that out. And hey, look at me, look at me. <laughs> well, that's, that's a lot of fun. Who do you think today, if anyone could accomplish something like that, could could build a, a space yacht and actually go up and, and live there for a while. Is that still a ways off? Uh, could could Musk manage it if he sold all his shares in SpaceX and Tesla? Doesn't have to do that. It's only five billion bucks. It's only five billion dollars to build a space yacht? Yeah. That sounds like way and, too low a figure. Well, no. Uh, it's all kind of calculated. And uh, I hope to be a customer of Elon's, which I know well in the early days when he was in LA, first came to LA, uh, for about a dozen flights, or else three uh, star, uh, Starship flights, for the for the parts of the yacht that all come up, they're inflate, it's all inflatable sections, so they are compressed, you get them up into orbit, line them up, they inflate, then they're fused together, and then you put all the gizmos in it, and then you've got an orbital super yacht. Okay, so it's actually much more in reach than it sounds like. Quite a lot of, quite a number of people have the spare cash to do something like that. Well, yeah. I mean, not, not a lot, but you know, I mean, maybe a couple dozen could do it. Well, you know how many billionaires there are on earth? Quite a lot, but it's not just being a billionaire. You've got to be enough of a billionaire to be able to lose 5 billion. Like, and you can't just sell all the shares in a company worth 5 billion because then the stock price will tank and you won't be worth billions anymore. So it's, you, you probably, I would imagine you've got to have probably closer to like 20 or 25 billion in order to put 20% of it towards a project like this without it tanking you. So I don't know how many there are, but you know, there's over 7,000 billionaires uh, in the world today. And so it's probably hundreds of people then. Yes. Okay. But also corporations own yachts. Right. And turns out you don't write a check for $5 billion. You have to finance <laughs> it. Like you finance a house. It's basically a floating house for yachts, right? Yeah. So you get a 50 year, mortgage on your yacht. So you're not spending a $5 billion check, right? We I will see. do the same thing for orbital super yachts and eventually orbital resorts. And so 
the, the way there are zillions of financing tools out there. And it turns out the majority of wealth is not stock. It's basically real estate and other kind of holdings around the world. So, so that's in the multi-trillion, trillion, zillion dollar stuff. So um, you can finance a yacht like you finance your house. So it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of these days I can start making payments on that. And <laughs> Well, people yeah. do buy boats and they make payments and that they do stuff. And they're also a capital asset too. I mean, there's an asset with your yacht. Yeah. So, and for some people, the yachts and the oceans are more secure than a, their land homes. Uh, during the beginnings of the pandemic, since we follow a lot of this stuff, there was a lot of really rich people that took their super yachts and went out in the middle of the ocean for a while and just hung out there until people understood what was the magnitude and the severity of the um, pandemic and stuff. And there's a lot of these people that have, for the next pandemic, they're going to do the same thing. And if there's a nuclear war, they're going to do the same thing. And, Head to the south, uh, <laughs> go to the southern continents. But um, so there, when you really look at this stuff, it's, I find it actually fascinating to look at the economic structures and how you can finance projects. And that's a little odd for a designer person, but I realized also many years ago that you can design a business, design a financing program, an investment program, the way you design a house or you design a super yacht or right. you design a city. Right. It's all deductive reasoning and trying out stuff and experimenting and all that kind of stuff. And I've been in plenty of meetings with our investment bankers. That's who we use for our big Mars World project, um, where we're brainstorming just like we're brainstorming on anything else and coming up with ideas. Not stupid. No, I can't do it all. And we come up with a solution. It's really fascinating. Talk to me about movies in space, because as we were setting up this interview, you sent over an article which informed me that I think Tom Cruise is backing the first movie studio built in space. So number one, I just, I don't know why you would do that other than it just being awesome, which is, you know, motivation enough for a lot of projects, but I don't know why you would, you would go through all that. Like we have really good graphics now. What, what could you want to shoot in space? You can't shoot down here. And then what's the status of that project? Well, Tom Cruise wants to go to space. Jim Cameron actually wants to go to space. Yeah, uh, there's other people we deal with who just simply want to go to space and use 50 <laughs> or 60 million or 100 million of their visual effects budgets to pay for it. Right. So uh, and it's also a challenge and it's new and hasn't done before. And like, it's pretty cool. So uh, and the Tom Cruise brand or the Jim Cameron brand, they themselves are brands, their names right. uh, would get a big hit by if they don't get killed. Certainly. Uh, remember, going to space, you can get killed real easy. This is like real risk stuff, you know. Yep. It's not as dangerous. It really isn't going to space as climbing Mount Everest or any of the big mountains. I mean, much more people die doing that every single year than have died in space and stuff. So um, the novelty of doing it, the challenge of doing it, the fact that you're going to be the first to do something like that, but the Russians already filmed. They film in space. Do uh, that. The Russians yeah. film in space? They did a whole specific mission last year towards the last quarter of last year. They flew a Russian actress and a Russian director who also filmed it. And they filmed major scenes on board the International Space Station for a feature length Russian movie. Wow. Do you, know, do you happen to know what it was called, the, the movie? It's going to be called The Challenge in Russian. Okay, The Challenge. And it's about a doctor on board the International Space Station saving the life of a cosmonaut. So the cosmonauts and everyone on the space station, all the American, everybody was holding lights and I mean, they really got into it out of great all time. So, 
they party up there much more than people know. Don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> they, they do a lot more party, especially the Russians and stuff. And then we could talk about alcohol and space is a really good one, too. That's the very interesting stuff. Yeah, and don't sure. even go near the idea of sex and space. That's that's just amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I told you before we started uh, before we started recording that a while back, a couple years back before before coronavirus and all that, we had a, a mastermind group, which we we do periodically through the Da Vinci Institute, sure. where we just get a bunch of smart people around and talk about space. And we've done, you know, crypto assets and quantum computing and various other things. But this one was on space tourism. And I, and I swear to God, 35 minutes of the hour were spent on space prostitution. We're like, well, there's no laws out there. I mean, there'll be hotels. Like, kind of seems like a pretty obvious way to, to get people out there and, and money flowing around. And so, yeah, we, we settled on space prostitution probably being a pretty thriving business. Uh, no comment. <laughs> In, in your 50 years of thinking about space, you, you've this thought has never crossed your mind? Of course not, ever. No, of course not. not. No. Um, of course, the designs that we have for it is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. uh, drawn humans, by somebody else, I'm sure. Yeah, humans are humans, right? We're going to take everything with us <clears throat> as we go outward. The good news in the big picture uh, is that this time when humans go into a brand new location, brand new environment, there's no one we have to displace. Right. There's no one we have to conquer. It's so hard. It's a much better thing, for example, how we built the space station to run it, to do it collectively than just one country or something like that. So in this case, no one has to be displaced. It's much better to collaborate. And it's an opportunity to learn to collaborate even more and more by doing these amazing, noble, exciting things. And why not? I mean, we want to have a positive future. We want to feel noble that we're doing exciting stuff. We're leaving the world a better place than when we came into it. And the future actually looks very bright uh, for humans moving outward. There's infinite resources we can tap into physical and energy-wise. And it's just the whole thing of learning and the science and trying and challenging. And even the tragedies and disasters, that's part of the process. Right. You noted that when humans venture into space, we'll take everything with us. We will take our human foibles and our cultural trappings and all of those things. But I am also interested in the psychological changes people undergo as they spend a lot of time in space. Presumably this has been studied by psychologists, but I'm getting it from the second half of Carl Sagan's novel Contact, which I presume you've read. Yeah. Yeah, I like the movie too. Yeah, the movies, movies also great. But he's he's got these really moving passages in Contact where he talks about how the people who spend all their time in space can't help but notice that the lines on maps don't actually appear on the land masses, and that a lot of it, a lot of the wars and a lot of the tensions, really just don't correspond to anything concrete on Earth. And it, and it almost in, inexorably they begin to think more globally. They begin to think more in terms of humanity as a whole because you're just looking down at the landmass. You're looking down at everything that there is, and it's hard for that not to alter your perspective over time. So have you given any thought to those dynamics and how people might change as they spend five years in space or 10 years in space? Uh, well, that's a whole other question of actually living in space for those lengths of time. That's almost immigration kind of stuff. But today we, we talk about a term called the overview effect. And that is what a lot of the people who've gone to space when they're looking at Earth from Earth's orbit they have what's called the overview effect, that feeling that it's one planet, we're one people, there are no borders, how can we learn to cooperate better? And also it's a gorgeous, beautiful planet full of limitless colors and dynamics, and at nighttime you see the lightning. And so 
I've talked to a lot of people who've gone to space and worked on the space station, on their space shuttle, all kind of stuff. And they all said that, you know, even the test pilot guys, that, you know, I did spend time just looking and feeling connected because I can see that big picture. Now, that's amplified to some degree when you go lunar distance and we see what's called Earthrise. So when you come around from the far side of the moon and you see Earth rising on, by the rim of the moon, uh, you see Earthrise. And you see this white blue ball in this complete immensity of deepest, darkest black you could imagine. And that's everything human yeah. that's ever been and for a long time ever will be. But you get a sense that it's spaceship Earth. And that's what we talk about more and more these days. The perception that we're basically all crew members on a really, really big spaceship. And if you think about it that way, we're actually in outer space this very second. Right. Our spaceship is in space yeah. and we're orbiting our sun, right? right. Um, and down to a micro level, for example, for many years when I have a birthday or someone has a birthday, I say happy orbit day. <laughs> Because when you have a birthday, you've completed another orbit of our sun. Right. And uh, we're going to do orbit day cards and all kinds of stuff like that. But you want to start training your own mind to think a little differently, not birthday, but orbit day. You know, spaceship Earth. I'm a crew member on spaceship Earth. And we want more and more of these powerful, wealthy people to go to space on their yachts or their trips or whatever and hopefully have those overview effects of hopefully coming back. Not everyone will, certainly. But a little bit bigger picture of maybe donate a little more money or be more involved in these causes or pay more attention to things that have a bigger picture beyond their own uh, world stuff. So that's one of the benefits we see of more and more influential, powerful people going to space. And that's what we're going to be doing a lot of promotion of. So the overview effect, the perception that you've left Earth and you come back to it has a profound effect on people in different ways. And the more people that has that experience, I think the world will better be a better place. I, I 100% agree. And that comment about Earthrise, I think is really compelling. I've seen the pictures, which of course don't do it justice, but even that is enormously powerful. And, and to mention Carl Sagan again, he fought really hard to have Voyager, I think it was, turn around yeah. and take a picture of Earth yep. hanging in that famous sunbeam there. And, yep. and yep. It, as always, he had the perfect words to describe that feeling, the immensity of it all, and, and how much is there and how, mu how much is concentrated on this tiny little dot and suspended in a, in a sunbeam. And yeah. I, I think uh, that, that also dovetails with the effort to replace birthday with orbit day. It's just, it's a linguistic and aesthetic reorientation towards a bigger picture. Seeing the earth is not all that there is, but just a launch pad out into the universe. Oh, absolutely. And that's where Carl Sagan came out with the pale blue dot, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's earth and stuff. Now, something's also kind of amusing is you know, my wife and I have completed numerous orbits of our planet, of our sun. So we actually like using the Martian calendar when we're talking about orbits. But it takes almost two years for Mars to orbit the sun. So if we use Martian years for orbit days, we're in like our early 30s, which is really cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> Do you feel any better? Do you feel any more spry after having adopted the Martian calendar? No, but it just sounds good. I got you. Well, speaking of Mars, uh, you know, Elon Musk was on Lex Friedman's podcast recently, says we're somewhere between like five and 20 years from landing on Mars. How do you feel about that timeline? Does it seem too optimistic or do you think that it, it really is around the corner? I, I think 10 years is probably a pretty good date 
for first humans going to Mars. And hopefully it's an international crew going and the UN was involved and the whole thing like that. Um, and that, but that's a quest. That's exciting. It's an adventure. It's dangerous. It's the first of the first, right? So humans need to have that excitement to be motivated to do something grand and noble. And Mars, uh, we're going to go back to the moon, certainly. And the moon's a great staging point for going to Mars. Uh, but that's the quest in our lives, is our lives and our children's lives is humanity moving outward in that solar system. Mars is an important part of doing that. And uh, that's very exciting uh, in itself. So I think 10 years from now, humans landing on Mars is probably realistic and could happen. How do you feel about manufacturing in low Earth orbit? This is another topic that we come back to periodically. My understanding is that if you just don't pay too much attention to how much uh, it costs to get everything up there, there are actually enormous economic benefits for, for certain kinds of things. Certain sorts of materials are exceptionally difficult to work with in Earth's gravity. Certain kinds of crystals are easier to form up there. Do you think there's anything to that? Are we going to see space tourism or space manufacturing rather relatively soon? Or are the economics just not there yet? Well, they've been doing test space manufacturing for decades, even the space shuttle and all kinds of stuff, growing crystals. And one of the areas is drug formation and testing and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's an ongoing process. And over time, it will grow into a bigger industry, very specialized, because the reason you go is the zero gravity. So there's only certain types of products that benefit from zero gravity. The certain elements don't settle up because of gravity and they combine better and stronger and all kinds right, of stuff right. like that. So space manufacturing is, a, is going to be a business, going to be a bigger business. In the longer run, we're going to be doing a lot on the moon because the moon actually has, it's great, a lot of water, actually a ton, zillions of tons of ice in the North Pole and the South Pole. And those are delivered over millions of years by ice uh, comets hitting the moon, making a crater. And because of the location and the orientation, the sun never hits those certain areas. So the, the ice never melted and vanished into the, the uh, just drifted away. So there are, uh, we were for many years, and I'm leading up to a space joke. Just, you know, I'm coming up to a space joke. <laughs> All just right. to give everyone a warning on this. There aren't, there are very few space jokes. And this is a lunar joke, right? right. So get ready. So um, for a lot of time, a lot of years, we were looking at mostly the South Pole, where we know for sure because of spectral analyses and even physical bump, you know, ramming a, a rocket thing into, this, into the moon and seeing the fluff and uh, doing analysis on that. There's a lot of ice in these crater rim areas and stuff like that. But in the last five or six years, they've also noticed uh, that there's a fair amount of ice in the North Pole too. So you now have the South Pole and you have the North Pole with ice. So essentially the moon is now bipolar. <laughs> I love bipolar. it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Bipolar. Okay. That's space humor. You got to work on that. It's the whole frontier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a joke. Frontier. You got to have fun with this stuff, right? Fun actually helps you create. It really does. Oh no, I agree. It's, it's much easier to get into a flow state. It's much easier to get absorbed in what you're doing if you're actually enjoying it. And yeah. I've enjoyed this conversation. I love the topic. I love the various tangents we d went down and the optimism that suffuses all your comments. Do you have anything, uh, any, any closing remarks you'd like to leave us with? I'm very optimistic about the future. I always have been as a young person. I came from a very modest background, very modest. 
but ideas have taken me around the world and given me opportunities to do kind of cool stuff. So I encourage everyone to be creative and optimistic and to get involved in space groups and other kind of futuristic groups and be a part of making a better future for everyone and having a lot of fun doing it and also making a lot of money. Money, good. Money, yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. Are, are there any groups in particular that you like? Well, I like that Space Tourism Society group just kind of because I founded it right. 25 years ago. They're pretty cool guys. Um, but the National Space Society is a great group, particularly for college and young people to get involved with. Uh, the Space Foundation, Colorado Springs, has a bunch of education-oriented kind of stuff. STEM education is throughout the uh, space community and so forth. So if you just do a little Googling, uh, you can find all kinds of groups. You can start a space group. Astronomers Without Borders is a wonderful group. It's worldwide uh, where you're going to star parties and you're learning about the heavens. And their whole philosophy is we all share the same sky. You know, so that's that's a great group too, Astronomers Without Borders. But there are ways of getting involved today, now, after this call. Google it and join groups. Well, John Spencer, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you very much. And let's stay in touch. Absolutely. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>